Thanks, Karen. I'm just Jason. Uh, a story. Years ago, I was in Boston visiting friends. I love Boston. Uh, during the week, I was there, and they were working, so I kind of found some things to do on my own during the days, and I would just kind of walk around that city. It's, it's a great city to walk around in. And as I was walking the streets of Boston, I was walking along the Boston Common, which is right there next to the State House, uh, like in the heart of historic Boston on Boylston Street, when I look up and I see this. Now, it's a little hard to see on the screen, so let's zoom in a bit to the scene here. This is an old sign sticking out of a building with a treble clef on a music staff, and next to it, the letter is S-T-E-I-N-W-A. And if anybody knows anything about pianos, you know that Steinway is a very prestigious brand of piano. Now, um, Steinway pianos in particular mean a lot to me. They always have. Uh, Piano was kind of my first love as like something I did in the world in life. It's where I found my way into music and into friends. Uh, when I we were growing up, we, uh, we had the Disney Channel from time to time, depending on the promotional package offered by the cable company. <laughs> and during one of those luxurious stretches where we enjoyed the Disney Channel, they aired Billy Joel's concert live from Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Any Billy Joel fans in the house? Yeah. yeah. So uh, we were smart enough to have our VCR primed and ready because we knew it was coming, so we taped that thing. And then for days, weeks, months, years afterwards, I would get home from school and I would run downstairs and I would sit close to the TV and I would put that, that video cassette in the VCR and I would watch Billy Joel live at Yankee Stadium when he just hammered that piano. I mean, he would put all of his weight and all of his heart into it. It was like piano rock at its best, right? Like saxophone solos and like a drummer who plays too many notes, but that's what 80s music did at the time, you know, like, but but the piano was like really, really compelling and Billy Joel is a Steinway guy. And you can hear Billy Joel talk about his relationship with Steinway pianos in particular. He'll tell you, for example, that uh, as a guy who like plays very hard on the piano, like puts a lot of energy and power into the piano, that Steinway is the only piano he's ever played that the more you give it, the more it gives back. And I'll tell you, I, I tend to play the piano very aggressively myself. Uh, I was taught that it's actually a, a, a drum set with notes. Actually, that's how I was taught from my teacher, and it's really true. It works. Uh, so anyway, like I played the piano very rhythmically and very aggressively, and a lot of pianos that are lesser pianos, there's a certain point where like, the more you give it, the more it gives back. But there's kind of this curve where you reach a diminishing return, and once you get past the peak of that curve, the more you give it, bizarrely, the less it gives back, but not so with the Steinway. I don't know how they do that, although they've had 150 years to figure it out. Like for 150 years, they've been making these beautiful pianos. They're all handmade to this day. It can take a year from the beginning of production to the day that a piano actually makes it into the owner's hands. Uh, you know, at a piano, there's 88 keys, right? You know, there's every, every key has an action that triggers a hammer, and the hammer lifts up and strikes the string that sounds the note, right? Well, on the, the hammer, there's that kind of felt part, the kind of soft part that actually strikes the string. They call that a bushing. And on a Steinway piano, they custom voice every piano, which means that uh, an expert craftsman or craftswoman who has spent years learning their trade, once the piano is fully built, which, again, it's already been a year, of custom hand craftsmanship that's brought it to this point. They will play that piano for hours and days, and they will play every note over and over again, and they will use their ear to make sure that every bushing on every hammer is just right to make sure there's an even voicing across all 88 keys. They use tiny little implements, little needles and, like, files to make sure the felt bushings are even enough so that when they deliver that piano, it's just, it's just perfectly voiced. And for 150 years, some of the best artists in the world have loved what a Steinway piano can do. And so I'm walking along the street in Boston... 
And I see the sign that says Steinway. <laughs> and I feel like I have stumbled into a Mecca, like a holy grail. So I walk up and I turn in and there's sure enough a store there with gorgeous brand new Steinway pianos. They have nine foot concert grand Steinway pianos. You know the ones that are like bigger than a car? And I walk in and I'm the only one in there besides the salesperson. And they're really kind and friendly. You, you never know you walk into a place like that. By the way, these pianos can cost $200,000. So you never know you walk in, are they gonna be happy you walked in or are they gonna ask to see your credit limit first before they let you touch the thing, you know? But the salesperson's very kind and I just said, could I, could I play one? And they're like, please, we love it when that happens. And so I had like two hours. <laughs> Nobody else walked in. I just got to play this nine-foot concert grand, lifted that lid way up, and sure enough, the more I gave it, the more it gave back to me. And I got to tell you, like, piano is kind of like a spiritual experience for me. Um, I learned at a very young age that it was easier for me to pray, like, through the piano than it, than it is without. There was just something about kind of working out uh, my life, my feelings, my heart, my experience of God there. Uh, in college, I went through a really hard time, and I was a music major uh, for one of my five majors in college. Um, and so, you know, there's big practice rooms with grand pianos there in college. And I actually reached a point where not only would I go in there to play and pray, but sometimes when life was too much, when it was overwhelming, I would actually, I would actually crawl under the grand piano. And it actually felt like a shelter for me because I trust the piano, because I feel so safe with the piano, because I feel so, like, understood by a piano. And so there I am in Boston uh, playing the Steinway just, like, emoting and feeling the beauty and the joy and, like, reveling in the fact that we live in a world with music and a world where human beings can make things like this. You know, in a sense, it's just wood and steel and felt bushings that have been perfectly voiced. But on another level, it's like a bunch of human beings who spent years learning their craft and then putting their love into this thing just so that I could sit at it and enjoy it for a couple of hours, free of charge, you know? So I have this profound experience of depth and of joy and of beauty, and I would even say of God. And then uh, I walk out of the store, and a couple hours later, I meet up with my friends who I'm visiting. They've been at work all day, and so we get together for dinner, and naturally they ask, like, Jay, what have you been up to all day, you know? And having had this incredible experience of depth and beauty and joy and prayer, I say to them, guys, I got to play a $200,000 piano today. Yeah, how do you feel about that? It doesn't feel quite right, does it? Like, after the words slipped out of my mouth, I actually felt this deep thing inside, which was like I had just betrayed the experience I had. And I spent quite a while looking back on, like, wait, how did all of that depth and joy and beauty and prayer and craftsmanship and history get boiled down to $200,000? And why did I think that that was the best way to communicate what I had experienced that day with these friends? And I could go on and on with my own, uh, you know, self-analysis on why I did that, but I'm just observing right now with you that, like, something got lost in translation, didn't it? And this is the thing about money in particular. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes money is the way that deep three-dimensional things get reduced, get flattened, get commodified. Sometimes our relationship with money is the way that we skip across the surface of things rather than sinking down into the depth of things. And I, I'm pretty sure that like 
if the greatest purpose of being human is to meet God and know God in this life, to know the mystery at the heart of everything, the mystery that is love, if that's what we are here for, and I think that mystery is always present, but it's there in the depths, then I think anything that keeps us out of the depths might in some way make it harder for us to know God in these moments, which might be one of the many reasons that money is talked about with a lot of warnings in Scripture. And the reason I'm talking about depth and beauty and God and money and warnings is because we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, and the text that we're going to look at today talks about stuff and money and heart and treasure and, like, how we get invested in the wrong things and the right things. And I just wanted to, like, share that story first because it's one little uh, access point for me in my own life of how some of this stuff gets turned sideways, right? Uh, so we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, this is this big promise that, that Karen already talked about, that God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. Jesus seems to believe this in his bones, which is why he begins the Sermon on the Mount with those beautiful, generous promises that no matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done or what has happened to you, no matter what you've suffered or what you have or what you have lost, he seems to say God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. And then he spends the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 giving snapshots of that life and practices for that life and ways of being in the world that will draw us into that life and warnings about the ways of being in this world that will take us out of that life. So we've been just trying to hear that like week after week since September, just moving slowly through these texts. And by the way, on Easter, uh, we're going to have baptisms. And we're going to say more and more as we get closer to Easter about what that is and what it means and why it matters and why you might want to be a part of it. But for now, I'll just say every week that we hear the Sermon on the Mount, every week that we hear Jesus speaking to us about the promise of God giving God's life to us and living God's life through us, well, every week we are actually hearing like what it is that baptism says yes to. And so if in the back of your head you've been wondering if that's something you want to be a part of, for now I would just say, like, keep listening to what Jesus is saying and just ask yourself, is this something you want to say yes to while we work through it? That being said, we're going to uh, jump into where we are at in the text. You guys up for a little work? Cool. Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, that's the text we're working on today. Now, it, it's a little uh, complicated. There's sort of kind of like three big movements in it. And depending on how you hear it, you might feel like they're very unified, they're all connected, or they might feel like a little disjointed, but somehow they're all stacked on top of each other here in the, in the text. I'm, I'm going to just try to like offer some observations and some proposals about how it is that all these words might fit together for us. And I want to propose a practice that might help us take seriously what Jesus is saying. Uh, but today is really just like some observations and a practice. So uh, let me start with an observation at the beginning there, where Jesus does a thing that often happens in wisdom literature, where there's kind of a warning, right? Like, like don't store up treasures in a way that they could be destroyed or robbed from you. That there's a certain way of investing, a certain way of being in the world that's going to set you up for disappointment when you realize you've invested in the wrong thing. 
Uh, Jesus tells a story in Luke 12 that kind of rhymes with what he says here in Matthew chapter 6. In Luke 12, it's a parable. He says this in response to somebody who's come to him asking him to adjudicate a dispute between that person and their sibling over the parent's estate. So there's a fight going on over the will and the resources. And in response to this person asking Jesus to like set the record straight on this fight over the will, he tells a very brief little parable. He says there was a man once, a farmer, whose land produced an abundant crop. Basically, it was a really good growing year on the farm. So, you know, some years you put a lot in, you get a little out. Some years you put maybe even a little in and you get a lot out. You just, these are the kind of odds that we deal with in life, right? Uh, some, by the way, interestingly, during COVID have felt this, right? It's odd that during COVID, some um, have lost more than ever financially or otherwise, and others weirdly have gained more than ever financially. We're just living in a very strange time economically where that's the case. We could say more about that later. But anyway, uh, some people in the last couple of years, like your, your coffers are full. You know, maybe you've invested wisely and the market's been mostly up and to the right. Well, this guy, he, he's uh, living with an abundance. Uh, his crops have produced a bunch. And he's like, what should I do with all of this stuff? And he says, I know. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Brilliant, right? Very creative. And so he tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones and he's able to store up all of this abundance that he's yielded from his, his crops that year. And, the, and Jesus in the storytelling says, he sat back basically. He leaned back and he said, oh man, life is good. I have everything I need. I'm, t- I'm just set for life. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus says that God came to him that day and said, you fool, this very day your soul will be demanded of you. Uh, you had a moment in time to do something that would be good for the like, longevity of your soul, and instead all you have is bigger barns with more in them for you. And then he says, so it is with those who lay up treasures for themselves and are not rich toward God. So it is with those who lay up treasures for themselves and are not rich toward God. Um, Let's look at the end of the passage here. So now I'm skipping to the end of what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't be rich toward God and be greedy. Like, this, this just, like, doesn't work this way. Uh, now, what's interesting is whether it's in the Matthew text or the Luke text, there's this idea that you can kind of be rich toward God or you can have treasure in heaven, right? Let's work on the treasure in heaven thing uh, for a minute. Uh, depending on the environments you've been in or the way that you've heard heaven talked about, you might have thought of heaven as uh, <clears throat> another time and another place. Anyone? Sandy Patty, 1980s, CCM? This is an old Christian song, Another Time and Another Place. Uh, you're welcome. Um, my mom used to sing that in church, by the way. Uh, that heaven is another time and another place, right? Well, if heaven is another time and another place, it raises questions about how you would be invested in heaven if it's not here and not now. Like, what would you do with that, right? Like, like how does one get themselves involved in something that's not here and not now? But I think that's actually pretty bad heaven theology because if you read the New Testament, it seems very clear that for Jesus, heaven is, um, there's a sense in which heaven gets realized fully later, but heaven is also here and also now, which is why Jesus can say things like, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. You can give your heart to the kingdom of heaven, receive the kingdom. Like all of these metaphors suggest that the kingdom of of heaven, heaven, that thing that he's calling us to invest in, isn't some other time and some other place. It's also here and now in this time, in this place, but perhaps it lives at a deeper frequency than the kind of shallow frequencies we live at when we just see things for the commodities that we can store up for ourselves. So this might be good news, right? That like perhaps there's something about 
the reality that Jesus is trying to wake us up to and invite us into, the reality of God giving God's life to us and living God's life through us, that's available right now. And apparently the way that we think about money, resources, commodities, the things that we store, apparently all of that has like something to do with the opportunity in front of us. Like right here, right now, to have some investment in, some connection to the kingdom of heaven, which in Jesus' vision is the only thing worth investing in because things that aren't a part of that don't last, right? Moths and vermin chew them up. A fate could befall you or me, and we'll realize those full barns aren't going to do us any good. But we could be rich toward God. We could invest in the kingdom of heaven somehow, and that that would set us up for the kind of investment that's worth it. Now, in the middle of the text, there's a, there's a weird... Um, uh, sort of proverbial thing that Jesus does. We're going to look at this next. Here, the language about the eye, Matthew 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? All right, let's leave this text up for a minute. Uh, does this feel a little weird in the flow for anyone? Is this kind of a strange, like, image or metaphor? It is to me. Like, when you're just kind of reading through Matthew 6, and he's talking about investing in heaven and not investing in, like, mammon or stuff or wealth. He's talking about being rich toward God, like in the Luke parable. Like, and then we have this weird thing about the, the eye, the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Well, one thing we can do with this is ask ourselves if there's anything that ancient people thought about when they heard about eyes that we don't think about when we hear about eyes. And it turns out that, like, in Jesus' time and place, there's definitely different understandings of the way bodies work, the way the eyeballs work, like, what's going on with them. So let me take you back 2,000 years for a minute and throw a couple things out here that researchers have discovered that might have something to do with why Jesus is talking about eyes. And then we'll come forward again. We'll come back to the year 2022, and we'll, uh, we'll work out together, like, how that might apply today. A couple things going on uh, back then, two or three. Uh, first of all, uh, in the ancient world, uh, a practice developed that's very unfortunate and prejudicial, but it was a fact of the time, a practice called physiognomy. Physiognomy is basically the idea that we can know things about you based on how you look. Uh, your intelligence, your character, your goodness, your capacity, that like, your physical body will manifest those things. That might sound ancient. If anybody knows anything about the history of race in America or in the Western world or Europe, you know that there are some very uh, painful and vile examples of that in our very recent history too. But back then, this, this idea develops that you can kind of know something about someone. And the eyes are really important for the practice of physiognomy. There's this idea that there could be something sort of detectable in one's eyes that tells you about like what's going on inside them for better or for worse. So you have physiognomy. Uh, you also have the idea of a bad eye. This is the idea, not that the eyes receive everything around them, but rather that the eyes act on things around them. So somebody with a bad eye, somebody perhaps evil, somebody with a strange power, perhaps a little bit of sorcery, who by looking upon the world can sort of cast curses on the world. So if somebody catches you in their gaze and they have a bad eye, that'd be bad for you. That would be like you might be subject to a curse. So that's an interesting thing going on in the ancient world. The other idea is that um, rather than the eyes receiving light, there's an idea that the eyes have light. The eyes are a lantern. 
There's something that we hear in ancient texts and poetry, even in, in the Old Testament scriptures, that the eyes are not just a receiver of light, but they're kind of a source of light, illuminating things around us, which is a way of saying that your eyes, like the, that the nature, the, the quality of the character with which you see is really important for the way you see, right? Now, some of that might sound really ancient and archaic and superstitious, but what's interesting is there's some modern ways that we understand vision, both like neurobiologically and perhaps spiritually or emotionally or psychologically that don't sound that far off from what I just described to you. First of all, some of the neurology, the biology. Uh, we're learning that the eyeballs uh, do more than just like show us what's around us. The eyes actually serve a function in the human body, which is that the way that they see, the things they see, the things they focus on, has a way of telling your body whether it should be relaxed and safe or whether it needs to be in a state of arousal because it's unsafe, a state of kind of readiness and alert. And the best understanding that I know of for how we got here goes back to like some evolutionary history of the Homo sapien species, where you go way back in time and imagine you're ancient Homo sapien and you're walking through the woods or uh, you're in North Africa 200,000 years ago and you are kind of scanning everything around you, right? And then you hear a little rustle in the, a little rustle in the brush next to you. What do you do? You probably turn toward that, the source of that little bit of rustling in the brush, right? And, you, and your focus narrows. It tightens in. All of a sudden, you're not taking in the landscape or the horizon. It's very, very focused and narrow on one point of attention right in front of you, right? Make sense? And it seems that what happened is that, that, that our bodies developed this response that, that when, they, when the eyeball does that, when the eyes actually turn toward a, a, a tight focal point and stay focused on it, that that became a bi- biological cue in our system that raises the anxiety level a little bit, the adrenaline level a little bit. It makes us more alert and ready to deal with a threat that comes at us, right? So I don't have time to think into all the research, but apparently this is fairly well documented that when we f- like focus on like a narrow focal point, our arousal state increases and we are ready to like protect ourselves, defend ourselves, which by the way, this is for free. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but this is actually one of the reasons why screens are not great for us especially that little handheld thing that you like, like look at first thing in the morning when you wake up out of bed. It seems to actually be the case that if like the first thing you do when the alarm goes off is you grab your phone and you look at it, you are literally starting your day at, at a state of sort of readiness alert. A slightly unsafe feeling is sort of acting itself out in your body and like the framing way that you entered your day was to tell your body unknowingly that, hey, we're a little unsafe here. Let's be alert. Did you know that? Fascinating, right? Uh, nothing to do with the sermon, but I thought you should know. Anyway, so, so, our, so our eyeballs, like the way they see, the, the actual act of focusing uh, has an effect on us. It raises our alertness. It makes us nervous. It makes us sort of anxious. It gets the adrenaline going. So we have, uh, we have that kind of thing going on. But then there, there's also this phrase that's become uh, common in literature for roughly the fa- past 50 years through a number of authors, or 70 years. Has anybody ever heard this phrase? We see things not as they are, but as we are. You ever heard that? We see things not as they are, but as we are. This goes along with the language of projection, where we are capable of projecting onto things around us the things that are within us, right? So for example, maybe somebody is perfectly safe And their actions, their motivations are all good and above board. 
but maybe they resemble someone or there's something about how they, they're acting that, that is familiar to you, but your familiarity goes back to a painful experience at some other time where the person who bore a slight resemblance or spoke in the same kind of way was unsafe for you. Now you start projecting that woundedness or unsafety on a person who's completely safe, right? Uh, by the way, I actually experienced this a lot in pastoral ministry. Some people say that pastors are screens and the congregation projects on, on the screen. <laughs> like that's just a, a fact of uh, this kind of work. Many other kinds of work have similar features like that where there's like projection going on, where people don't see you for who you are. They don't see you how you are. They see you, their, their eyes are, are actually putting out there in front of them things that come from within them. And if you know anything about that kind of projecting and like what it does in the world, it can break the world, right? If I project on you uh, things that aren't you, it can really affect things between us. Can it? So it might seem kind of superstitious that like these ancients have these weird ideas about the eyes and like light and like the eyes acting upon the world. And yet maybe it's not. So we have this whole backdrop that there's a lot going on with the eyes. There, the vision is of incredible spiritual importance, that there's good eyes and bad eyes, that there's light or darkness there. And Jesus brings that whole kind of proverb into this litany about generosity, about being generous toward God, about where we put our investment. And now I'm moving like highly into like interpretation. So hang with me here. And you're free to interpret the way you want to interpret. But when I hear Jesus talking about treasure in heaven, versus treasure in stuff. When I hear Jesus talking about um, being invested in things that will ultimately like, be destroyed versus being invested in things that will endure. When I hear him giving these kinds of warnings about serving God, not just trying to serve money. And where I hear him talk about like, the vision with which we move through the world. I, I think he might be saying that like, we are moving through a world where God is present in the depths of all things, where the kingdom of the heavens is here and now available to us. But we have a choice about whether we will look out upon the world able to see the depth in all of those things or whether we will reduce them to commodities that we can extract and exploit to ways that we can make ourselves rich to a, a kind of thing that we think makes us safe but in the end just divests us from God. And of course, the only investment that's ultimately safe is God because it's the only thing that endures, Right? That there's a way of seeing and walking through the world and knowing the world and relating to the world that senses the, the presence and activity of God and heaven in all things, that invests itself in the presence of heaven and God in all things. And there's a way of moving through the world that doesn't, that makes poor investments. And Jesus is concerned about this. He, he gives like warnings about this. He says, be really careful because you can't have it both ways. You're either going to see it one way or the other, or you're going to invest one way or the other. Uh, there's a movie called Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps. Anybody seen it? Nobody? All right, that's fine. A couple, couple of us? Okay. Anybody watch Billions? Yeah. yeah, there you are. Okay. Wall Street 2 is like a movie version of Billions, kind of. So you, it's, it's New York, and it's high finance, and it's billionaires, and it's Shia LaBeouf. And there's a moment where Shia LaBeouf, who is this kind of young uh, protege investor, like in Wall Street, is meeting with this billionaire hedge fund guy who's played by Josh Brolin. And there's a kind of adversarial thing going on between these two characters. And they have this kind of tense meeting that's very kind of mano and mano, right? And Shia LaBeouf says to Josh Brolin's character, he says, what's your number? And Josh Brolin's character says, what do you mean? And then Shia basically talks about how, in my experience, everybody in this field has a number. Meaning you're not happy with the money you have, but you think there's an amount of money that you could get. And if you just got that number, then you'd be happy, right? 
of course, the part that I don't think he says out loud, but if you know anything about human nature, you know, is like, of course, when you get to that number, you have a new number, right? It's never satisfied. But Josh Brolin has a more honest response to it. When Shia LaBeouf asks him, what's your number? Brolin just goes, more. And like, you, you think about that, and you think about like, if that's the way we move through the world, like, how are we going to see? If that's the way I'm moving through the world, how am I going to see you? The only question I'm asking is, what can I get from you, what, right? What can I take from you? Uh, when we move through the natural world, like the, the actual physical natural world that we live in, it will be awfully hard to not continue to just exploit it, just strip mine it, just rip out of it all the things that we can convert into cash so that we can make ourselves feel safe if the way that we are moving through the world is simply looking for more. And people who are moving through the world looking for more don't realize that there's an infinite abundance inside everything called God. But people who are learning with Jesus, with one another, how it is that we can meet that life of God in all things might discover that we don't have to scrape and scrap for more. Because if you have your hands on every, any like, bit of this world, you have your hands on God. The kingdom of the heavens is here and now. The trick is to live at that deep frequency enough that we wake up to it and stay invested in it and don't get distracted by the superficial, surface-skimming ways of commodifying everything around us, right? Now, here's the good news. I think that um, Jesus gives us the clue for a hack in his uh, teaching here. Because you might ask yourself, well, like, what would I do about all this? Like, I don't want myself invested in the wrong things. I don't want my heart in the wrong place. I don't want my soul demanded of me only to find out that I built a bigger barn for no good reason, Right? And um, the hack, I think, is hinted at in this one thing that Jesus said in the text. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, here's what I think is hopeful about this. I have found in my life that moving my own heart is difficult. Have you ever tried to move your own heart? Have you tried to will yourself to, like, feel things you don't feel, to love things you don't love, to be invested in good things when you're invested in Like, that's a hard thing to do with the heart, isn't it? The, the heart is this, this, like, very challenging animal in the chest that seems to have its own will and its own energies and that wants the things it wants and that loves the things it loves. And a lot of us find out that we love a lot of things that are not worth loving, right? So it's, like, hard to move the heart in a certain direction. But Jesus doesn't say wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be. If he did, I would think, shoot, we got to figure out how to move the heart so the treasuring is going in the right direction. But he doesn't say that. He says the other thing. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, which is way easier to me because we do treasuring all day long. Treasuring is a verb, right? Like time, energy, money, attention, devotion. Like we choose all the time what to treasure and how to treasure it. We do it with our budgets and our calendars. Treasuring is this active thing that we do. And I think what we could take from this is that if you want to move your heart in a better direction, just change your treasuring. Like reallocate the, the actual investments that we make. And that if you do that, you might discover that your heart is getting pulled along in that right direction. Your heart is living at greater depth. Your heart is more connected to the deep frequencies that are the places where we meet God who promises to give God's self to us right here in the world that we are living in right now. So I want to propose a practice in a couple of stages, and you can customize this. You can play around with it. Uh, but it begins with an inventory. I would propose that you um, look at your budget, look at your spending, look at your finances. Uh, and this could take like 15 minutes. This would be so easy to do. And just sort of look at like where your, where your money goes. Like what kind of treasuring are you doing? Where does your treasure go? And like start there and just to ask just on paper, like, like 
well, then where would I expect my heart to go if that's the kind of treasuring that I have been doing, right? Uh, do with the budget, do with the money. Just kind of look, look at where the dollars are actually going and ask yourself, is that where I want my heart to go? And if not, great, like wake up, change it, do something different, right? Uh, but money's not the only way that we treasure. In fact, I think in the modern world, uh, time might even be more valuable and time might be an even more potent way of treasuring things. And so you could do an audit or an inventory on, on your calendar. What if you looked at like the way that you spent the last week, the last month? If, you, if you're the kind of person that has a kind of regular routine, you could look at like just how that has played out. Or if different weeks are different, you could go back to the last month and just ask yourself, if time is a way of treasuring, then like, like, well, how have you been treasuring? And what have you been treasuring? And how do you feel about the idea that your heart is probably being pulled in the same direction as the ways that you're spending your time? You go a little further with this, separately, you could maybe just write down, what are the things that I think I value, that I want to value? What are the people, the causes, the relationships, the beliefs that I would say that I treasure or that I want to treasure, right? And then you could like take that list and then set it side by side next to the money and the calendar and ask yourself, are the things that I, are, my, my heart is telling me I love, are they being well-loved? with like the actual practical realities of my everyday life. This is the beauty of this, right? Like Jesus does this weird stuff with the eye and like metaphors about heaven and parables about guys building barns. But also there seems to be like a really practical wisdom here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And you and I, like I, like I know you know this, we all know this, like we live in a world that is highly commodified, don't we? Like we live in a world that's getting really, 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 really good at reducing everything to a dollar amount or a, you know, a fraction of a Bitcoin. And again, I'm not anti-finance. I think money is a beautiful tool. It's a wonderful tool. It can be a tool used for dignity and self-empowerment. It can be a way of uh, storing up the reward of our own work so that we can provide for ourselves and others. It can be a way to be generous. Money can be a wonderful tool. But we do live in a highly commodified world, a highly materialized world, where I suspect more than ever we're in danger of doing what I did in Boston. We're like, you know, I had this uh, encounter with this beauty and this depth, the ingenuity of human hands, craftsmanship, prayer, God, joy, generosity of that salesperson who said, have at it, man. Take hours and fill this room with noise, you know. I had that incredible experience. And, um, and then when I was able to express and describe it, all I had was a few dollars to say about it, which is to suggest that this thing's like anything else. It can just be summed up to money. And I don't think that's right or true, but I think Jesus knows then and now that people who want to live in the depth where God can be found, people who want to say yes to the kingdom of the heavens, have got to find a way to be vigilant, to divest themselves of the commodities and invest themselves in the depth underneath them. Uh, if we had time for a second sermon, we would talk about social systems and economies and just ways that we are living in a world that exploits people and the environment and seems to make it harder and harder for human dignity to be sort of lived out in the very unequal world that we have built right now. And it's important to have conversations about systems and policies and all that stuff. But if you went upstream, if, if you swam upstream all the way up, I think you would get back to the things that Jesus is saying that flow down to the world that we've created right now. And we would hear him saying, like, be the kind of people who know where the real treasure is and put all your investment there, put all your heart there. And that when you do that, you will find yourself living the life of the kingdom of heaven. 
you'll find God, living God's life in you and through you right now. Good enough? Yeah, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, keep thinking about baptisms coming up on Easter. Like I said, as we move over into Lent in March, we'll say more about what that is and what it might mean for you to be a part of it. Uh, also, I've not said this in a while. Uh, another thing you could do besides the inventory this week, besides the, the budget and calendar practice, is just go read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're not deviating. Like, we're going to be hanging out there for a while. Like, we're stuck there, guys. So you might as well just like, spend some more time with the text and uh, see if it has anything else to say to you. That being said, uh, may you know that there is a depth in our midst. That heaven is not just another time or another place. That heaven, that God is lurking in the world around us, saturating the world that we are living in. That we are tragically capable of missing it. Of missing the life of God in our own lives and bodies and our neighbors, our enemies, and the beauty of nature and the world that we have built. But may we hear our friend and teacher Jesus who is calling us back to an awakening teaching us and showing us how it is to know God and to give our hearts to God in the here and now. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.